Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin. And first of all, I hope you're well and I hope that you are doing social distancing um, and flattening the curve and doing all the stuff that we really hope people will do. We're going to use today uh, as a day to deal with some technology stuff that will allow us maybe to do the next iteration of of our show. Uh, And so we're going to give you this show from the past. It's a show about doomsday preppers. And I should tell you that, first of all, there's not just one kind of doomsday prepper, but I've been of late looking at some of their websites or Facebook groups. And you might imagine that a doomsday prepper, somebody had been getting ready to kind of go to the bunkers or whatever for years and years and years and years, decades, would look at something like this and say, now, now it's come true and all of my preparations uh, will now come to fruit. Um, That's not necessarily how they're all reacting. And a lot of them, because one of the species, subspecies of doomsday prepper is the kind of person who distrusts the government, distrusts public versions of the truth. That kind of person um, can look at what's been happening lately, the public health alerts that are coming out right now that are scaring us so much and think, oh, that's not true. <laughs> it's not, not only is it not true, but it's the, it's the prelude. It's the excuse the government or the new world order or whoever it is that they're worried about. It's the excuse that that group is going to use in order to take over. Um, so, so don't assume anyway that all the people that you hear about or meet on this particular show are now even more confirmed in their belief. They, they're confirmed in a belief, all right, but maybe not the same one that you're starting to think about right now. And we don't mean also for you to be scared as you listen to this show. Um, in fact, we're kind of hoping that it'll give you just another way of thinking about it and maybe even a little break. Here we go. Welcome to our show. Uh, today, we're going to talk about preppers. And, and I think preppers has evolved as a better word than survivalists. I think in the 90s, maybe the early aughts, you might have heard the term survivalist, which has kind of a zero-sum quality, right? I'm going to survive and you're not. And there's something so desperately bad about to happen that only some people are going to survive. I think preppers is a broader and implicitly gentler category. You know what the first prepper was? Okay, and this is kind of a survivalist thing, but first prepper was Noah, right? You know, he knew it was coming. I feel like it was like his wife was probably saying, you know, this is getting really expensive. Like we spend every dime we get on this boat and the animals, and he's going, no, I really think this is going to happen. So, I mean, from from that moment to this, uh, we've been talking about various scenarios in which things go sideways, whether it's an ark or your Jeep, something is going to go sideways. And certainly in our popular culture right now, it's not just the Walking Dead and zombie movies and Mad Max. Really, post-apocalyptic stories have gone from being a tiny little lemon peel of our culture to a pretty sizable chunk of pop culture is post-apocalyptic scenarios of one kind or another. But you don't have to be that to be a prepper. You know who you know who are preppers? The American Red Cross. I mean, they really want you to be ready for the earthquake, for the wildfire, for whatever it is. 
the American Red Cross, they do videos. I watched a Jamie Lee Curtis video done for the American Red Cross about like what to have, what to be ready to take with you, and all this kind of stuff. So without further ado, we're going to get into this. Oh, I want to say one more thing. What this is not is a show about exactly what and what not to do, what and what not to bring. Like at the end of the show, don't call me up and go, you didn't mention hand-cranked radios or flashlights that run on your urine. We're just, we can't name everything that you need. Well, one thing you might want to do is mention the book I'm about to, uh, to read, the book that I'm about to mention. So uh, we're going to start uh, by talking to T. Krulos, a freelance journalist and author of Heroes in the Night, Monster Hunters, and most significantly for our purposes, Apocalypse Any Day Now, Deep Underground with America's Doomsday Preppers. A little bit later, uh, you're going to meet somebody uh, from the Zombie Squad. Loosely speaking, the Zombie Squad watches zombie movies and zombie culture and tries to learn from it, tries to figure out like what to do better. Uh, near the end, you're going to hear from the founder of Ars Technica, John Stokes, who has, to his own surprise, I think, become deputy editor of a site called The Prepared and has become a prepper uh, in his own right. But let's get into it with T. Krulos, uh, who's uh, in touch with us through Milwaukee Public Radio, WUWM. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So there's something profoundly American about being prepared for some kind of end. In your book, you trace that back at least as far as the early 19th century and the Millerites, right? Yeah, it's always been sort of ingrained in our our culture and the DNA of this country. So, um, yeah, one of the first stories I talk about is Father Miller and the Millerites. And he had done some math based on the book of Daniel's and predicted that the apocalypse was going to happen in 1843. He said in in March at first, and then he switched the date when that didn't happen to October. And people took it very seriously. A lot of people sold their possessions and stopped working because the world's going to end. Why would you do that? Some people even were standing on the, the roofs of their house on the day it was supposed to happen, hoping to be closer to God when it happened. And that day became known as the Great Disappointment for obvious reasons. Right. Like and, and there's been a series of those, you know, people like Harold Camping, whom you write about, and various, there have been UFO cults who thought that a flying saucer was going to come take them away. There was one group I read about, uh, I forget where in preparation for the show, who they cut out their zippers and the metal grommets of their shoes because yes. they'd been told that the flying saucer didn't take metal, right? Right, right. And they had um, a, a secret password to get on the UFO, which was, I left my hat at that's home. That's it. That's it. Yes, it's in your book. Okay. So, um, yeah, and I always feel like, you know, when that doesn't happen and you have to walk home in the night with no zipper, it just kind of doesn't feel good. <laughs> it's a big disappointment. But, I mean, those are the extreme examples. And one of the things that you do in your book is kind of look at a, a continuum of uh, preppers and preppers who are prepping for different reasons. So I'm going to just have you just cite a few of the examples. Well, we should say something before that. Well, you should say this. It's really hard to get these people to talk to you because the whole whole point of what they're doing is to create an advantage for themselves in the most dire circumstances. So they don't necessarily want anybody else to know what they're doing. I mean, overall, it, it varies quite a bit, but certainly some people are secretive. Um, they don't want people to know their information. And I also think there's this kind of a distrust in media personality types. And I think that's justified sometimes, you know. Um, a lot of times people get lumped together with people they don't want to and get made fun of or painted with the same paintbrush 
So it can be a secretive, at times almost, I would say, paranoid uh, group of people. Right. So uh, let's talk about James and Doug. Uh, so uh, after a while, you did get some people to trust you enough to talk to you a little bit. I mean, most of them wanted their identities at least somewhat concealed. So uh, James and Doug are your fellow Wisconsinians. And what are they up to? They live in Sheboygan, which is, you know, pretty typical mid-sized city in Wisconsin. You know, I didn't think that their ideas were, were crazy at all. They just want to be prepared in, in case some sort of disaster happened here. So they were doing a lot, you know, a lot of stuff that I think is pretty cool. Like uh, ha- they had really nice gardens where they're growing a variety of fruits and vegetables. They were raising quail and rabbits. And we're just kind of planning what they would do in different scenarios, which I think is kind of fun. You know, they planned their escape route from town and where they were going to head to and who was going to do what. And they've got kind of a team, an action team ready to go. Right. And and so I think uh, their action team, including uh, them, involves some former military people. And there is, you know, with a lot of these people, the other thing is you want to have all your stuff ready. You want to have your quail ready to go in the truck and you want to have, you know, all this stuff, the, all your, your bug out bag stuff to take to this new location. But you also need to be prepared to pr- defend your new location. So there is sort of a firearms training thing that goes along with this. Yeah, for a lot of groups, I think so. And they're pretty well prepared to take on, you know, a violent apocalyptic scene. So a lot of them are armed, well-stocked in that department. So and another aspect to this seems to be there's almost a kind of reaction formation that goes on to whatever's happening happening politically. So when Barack Obama became president, you got a, a, a kind of cascade effect with one kind of prepper or survivalist. The election of Donald Trump seems to provoke a different kind, right? People who feel like, oh, no, this can't be good. Something bad's about to happen. Yeah, I was pretty well knowledgeable about when Obama was president, there was this huge upsurge, especially in preppers that were more militia type of groups. And uh, a lot of that had to do with there was this common thing that we heard over and over again during his administration that Obama was going to come and confiscate the guns at some point. So I think there's a lot of fear that was built on that of a sort of liberal new world order or something. And a lot of militia groups uh, had a lot of membership. When Trump was elected, I was very curious to see what would happen. And I found that one of the, the curious side effects of it is that there is a growing group of more liberal preppers mm-hmm. who are afraid, you know, what might happen if um, Trump loses his cool and decides to hit the nuke button or something. Right. Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think they may be forgiven when you, you hear stuff like this. North Korea's reckless pursuit of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles threatens the entire world with unthinkable loss of human life. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. I mean, you hear some language in there that wouldn't be out of place uh, in some of the more extreme prepper groups, right? I mean, there's sort of ordinarily presidents try not to ratchet up fear or aggression (laughs) more than necessary. But President Trump seems to like this language. Oh, yeah. And it's frightening, you know. And and in the introduction of my book, actually, I talk about um, the doomsday clock, Mm -hmm. Bolton of Atomic Scientists, which they've pushed the doomsday clock as close as it's ever been 
uh, to midnight, with midnight being symbolic of a large-scale disaster since the invention of the H-bomb. It's the closest it's been. There are also some prepper networks who know that we're doing this show, and they may be calling in to say whatever it is that they're thinking about this. You know, it's interesting because Donald Trump, before he was president, was at least self-identified as a rather wealthy man. And the wealthy, as you explain in your book, T. Krulis, uh, the wealthy have their own plans. Uh, you visited a place in Kansas where a guy named Larry Hall has created sort of luxury survivalist condos. Yeah, and that was definitely one of the most interesting things I did for the book. Me and a friend went out there, and the survival condos are built in an old Atlas missile silo. So it goes about 14, 15 stories down um, below the earth, and um, there's condos, and then there's certain levels where there's recreational things to do. There's a swimming pool. There's a movie theater. One of the most interesting things I thought was there's actually – a small store is kind of like a almost like a Whole Foods or something, and um, that was built not because Larry wants to make a few extra dollars selling groceries, but a psychologist had recommended that people have some sort of experience that would, you know, remind them of being having a normal day to day life. So pushing your your shopping cart around a grocery store and comparing uh, different brands of window cleaner and stuff like that. Is something that can give you a sense of normalcy. I shop, therefore I am. Right. Yeah, and it makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, in reality, out here in the afterscape, you know, if there is one, one of the things that you kind of assume is conventional rates of exchange are going to completely collapse pretty quickly. I mean, at least on, in some of the scenarios, money would pretty quickly become worthless. And I guess some of these people have started to think about, well, what wouldn't be worthless? Yes. Uh, so the other thing I did while working on this book was I went to a couple of different prepper conventions where they have a lot of vendors set up. And, you know, something that people do try to collect is gold and silver because it's thought that that will have a better value than paper money. I thought it was interesting. Some people stockpile things like bottles of liquor, mm -hmm. even if they don't drink, because, um, you know, if money is worthless and the apocalypse is, is happening, which is going to be a pretty heavy time, then something like a bottle of liquor could have much more value than it does right now. Right. I mean, I, I want to get to this. I, I want to take all from Steve in just a second. But I mean, one of the things that emerges, I think, when you look at preppers is, yeah, some of them are a little paranoid or a little wacky or a little extreme. But a lot of a lot of being a prepper involves stuff most people should know. We should know how to do CPR. We should know how to treat you know, a wound, you know, if we don't have access to, to a, a medical professional. I mean, there's a sort of stuff that it would probably actually you should probably know how to build a still so that you can distill liquor and you won't have to be trading bottles of it that you've saved up once you run out. But it's, a lot of it is just knowing how to do practical stuff, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of that has been lost over the last couple generations maybe. You know, people don't have a need to do that sort of thing, so they've, they've lost the ability to do those skills or they've lost the interest to learn how to do those skills. Yeah, I know reading your book, I realized I don't know how to do anything. So yeah. my my plan in one of these scenarios is to become a post-apocalyptic false messiah because <laughs> I, I don't really have any practical skills. Let's take a call from Steve. Hi, Steve, you're on the air. Hi, gentlemen. I just wanted to draw a distinction between, like, like you're talking about, between those who are 
uh, obsessed with the idea of end times versus those who are just learning basic survival skills. I mean, I, I grew up in a very small country community, and we learned how to use a compass. We learned how to build a fire, et cetera, et cetera, all the Boy Scout stuff mm-hmm. that you can imagine. Right. So it, I think it's important to draw a distinction. It's not that we want to label everybody who is interested in survival skills as a uh, end time, you know, Noah. Right. That just doesn't make sense. So just let me wave a flag for those of us who just really want to know about how to make it out there. And you're absolutely correct. There's going to be situations where you're not going to need this stuff anymore. Granted. Uh, but it's always a good thing, I think, to teach people how to handle their own lives and in, in extreme situations. And, and you don't have to take them to that point of talking about end times or, you know, zombies or anything else. I, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a group of people out there that like to think about those things, and that's good for them. But, you know, there are some of us out there who are just plain normal folks, and we just like to pull our compass out. We like to get lost in the woods. We like to know how to build, put a splint on a leg. Whatever is appropriate. Yeah. No, I think that's a great call, Steve, and you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I've been reading about in T's book and elsewhere is just sort of practical knowledge. But as long as he said that thing, T, about some people like to think about this stuff, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't get to talk to you briefly about your time among the wastelanders. These are This is sort of Burning Man on steroids. This is like, <laughs> this is like Mad Max LARPers or something. Tell us, uh, tell us about the wastelanders. Yeah, I will. Uh, first, just to respond to that quick, you know, I, I think I do try to paint a lot of preppers as being normal in my book. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really easy to find kind of wild and, and crazy people to talk about, but I tried to show that a lot of people just were doing kind of a, a normal thing, learning these skills. Well, re- I mean, reading but, your book, as long as you're saying that, I want to just pause you there, too. One of my reactions was, in a way, you could sort of almost set up a kind of tipping point. So uh, we're going to talk to somebody in just a few minutes from the zombie squad. These people seem to me to be, to me, the tipping point is, which are you living more in, your actual reality now or some reality in the future that you're worried about? You know, if you're spending a, a, a huge amount of your time preparing for that future reality in a way that does distract the detracts and distracts from your life now there's something wrong there the zombie squad people seem kind of mentally healthy despite the name of the group they seem like you know they're kind of living in the moment they're kind of aware that it would be good to give a little bit of thought to the future but you just don't want to make it this you know overarching occupation yeah absolutely you're absolutely right about that all right let's go wastelanders yeah wastelanders yes so in my book, besides talking about prepping and preparing, I also just kind of explored the way the idea of the end of the world has affected pop culture, you know, our social interactions and stuff like that. So I was just curious, and I went to this really fun event called Wasteland Weekend that happens every year. It's out in the Mojave Desert. And uh, basically, people build almost a little village, and everyone's dressed up like they're in a Mad Max movie, and they've... Um, survived and they're in this dystopian future and it's really fun uh people are very creative they make special cars that look like again they're in like a mad max movie or something like that it's almost like a little society where everyone's sort of partying like the world has ended in its own way it did seem fun if a little uncomfortable at times so let's. Uh, w- I think what we should do now is take a break, and so we can uh, add uh, Mike to our conversation. So let's grab a break. T's coming back, and you'll also meet Mike, a metal fabricator and a member of Zombie Squad. Now it's all 
Hannah, I love you very much. What? Keep away from me. Stay where you are. Dad? Keep away from me! Dad? Keep away from me! Keep away from me! Keep away from me! Keep away! Keep away! What's wrong? Dad! Jen! Jen is infected! No! No! Jen! No! Jen, kill it! That's actually audio from Alex Jones's wedding. Boy, it sounds like it really got out of hand at a certain point. No, of course, that's the movie 28 uh, Days Later. And I should first of all say, as I've said in the past, we do not have chimps on the second floor of this building who have been intentionally infected with rage virus. That is not something we have leased space to DARPA so that they could study. So don't believe that. That's not what happens to our interns. Okay. That's just a big rumor. All right. So how interested are we in zombies or, or at least the return of the dead? Well, Game of, Thrones, <laughs> Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead, and to a certain degree, The Avengers, uh, all dealing a little bit with that whole question. And that's pretty much, that sweeps across, you know, a, a uh, the the top of modern popular culture. So that ought to give you some ind- indication. So that movie, actually, we still have T. Krulos with us. He's the author of Apocalypse Any Day Now, Deep Underground with America's Doomsday Preppers. But also joining us is Mike Davidson, a metal fabricator and a member of Zombie Squad. And so, Mike, in a certain way, uh, that movie, 28 Days Later, is kind of a foundational document for for Zombie Squad, right? A group of people watched it and got to thinking. Yes, our president, Kyle Ladd, and a couple of his friends went to see the movie in the theaters and went to have a bite to eat afterwards and the conversation about how they would have done it differently or what they would do in that situation grew from just a conversation between friends to zombie movie nights to get everybody else on board and eventually into an online discussion, which gave birth to uh, Zombie Squad as we know it today. And I think there's sort of a natural human inclination when you're watching something like that. You're second guessing the people who are winding winding up as toast, right? You're thinking, oh, well, if he hadn't, if he'd locked that thing behind him, you know, if if she'd done that differently. And and that's almost what you're trying to do to uh, what you guys started trying to do to kind of incorporate that as actual useful life lessons, right? Absolutely. Uh, And one of the most fun things about zombie movies is that everybody does everything wrong and uh, everybody ends up getting chomped on by a zombie in the end because they didn't heed basic safety procedures. So, yeah, we we try to shore up those plot holes in real life by uh, letting people know how they can be prepared for just such an event. Right. So, T, as I said to you uh, at the end of the first segment, you know, there's there's a continuum of people who could wear that prepper label in different ways in your book. It seemed to me, particularly when you write about going to, to ZombieCon, which is the kind of fun weekend event for, for Mike's organization, that these these guys, they seem a little bit more mentally healthy. It seems like, you know, the, the zombie squad lives more in the moment with a wary eye towards the possible apocalypse apocalyptic future as opposed to obsessing about it all the time, T? 
Yeah. Well, I was working on the book. I, I guess I really wanted to find a, a group that I could relate to on some level. Mm -hmm. I was like, I want to find a group that I can hang out with and participate in stuff with. I think I actually ran into Zombie Squad at a Comic-Con that I was at. And there used to be a lacrosse chapter, I believe, and I ran into some of those people there and, and was interested in it. Sometime after that, a Milwaukee chapter started here in my hometown and went to one of their meetings and thought it was interesting. And, and they told me about ZombieCon, and I ended up going that year and having a really great, interesting time hanging out with Zombie Squad. All right. Uh, by the way, just for context, uh, because not everybody is a Wisconsinian, lacrosse is a town in Wisconsin as opposed to there is no zombie squad group that <laughs> plays lacrosse against zombies, although that would be a lot of fun to do. And you'd probably win. They're probably not good at holding sticks. But um, so, Mike, you know, reading T's book and reading his chapter about you guys. It it was it sounds like it's kind of fun and you guys have fun, but you are also seriously and genuinely concerned about being ready for stuff. I mean, you live not too far from an earthquake zone, right? So so how do you balance? I mean, how how much of this is serious and how much of it is like a fun community to hang out with? Well, I mean, the the whole tongue in cheek bait and switch idea behind Zombie Squad is you know if you're ready for the zombie apocalypse, you're ready for everything, and we kind of use that to grab a certain demographic that were, you know, interested in, in the popularity of, of the zombie movies and the genre as a whole to get them to start thinking about, like, what would you do if there was an earthquake? What would you do if there was floods and fires and power outages and things like that? Do you know your neighbors? Do you know if they have a plan? And we we were able to parlay that into uh, a community uh, of people that are interested in expanding that community and teaching these skills to uh, anybody that's willing to listen. You know, it started out just like running canned food drives for a movie night at a bar. And then we're throwing sandbags with the Red Cross and doing blood drives and, you know, anything we could think of to just raise awareness about the the disaster preparedness plans that the government already has in place. And that even eventually led to government agencies like the CDC adopting our mantra of if you're ready for zombies, you're ready for anything. <laughs> so, T, I, it did seem, and we've alluded to this a few times, some of the people that you talked to were about all about surviving themselves, and they were not particularly interested in sharing much of anything with the rest of the world. In fact, don't come near my bunker or whatever, because I'll be throwing fragmentation grenades at you in the event of a breakdown of civilization. So how unusual is, I mean, Zombie Squad just seems to be all about helping other people learn the same stuff. So instead of, you know, a thousand people surviving, a lot of people would survive. Yes. And that's really, I think, the group's appeal to me and hopefully other people, is a community involvement, the mentality of I'm going to bunker down with a bunch of guns and beef jerky doesn't appeal to me at all, you know. I think that's not a good way to go out. I think there are other prepper groups like that, but I think the other interesting thing about Zombie Squad is I didn't get a real strong read off them as far as, like, political or religious affiliation, which I also found sort of refreshing. A lot of other prepper groups do have that to some extent, from my experience. We should say, Mike, that uh, I think T points out this out in his book. You found not only valuable skills and a sense of community in Zombie Squad, you found love at Zombie Squad. <laughs> 
Yes, I did. One of our international board members, uh, Kristen Nichols, was at the first meeting in the, uh, the St. Louis chapter that I attended, and that was probably about 80% of the reason why I went to my second meeting. And I, I just followed her around like a dumb puppy until she finally gave in. And we've been together for about nine years now. I should say we'd hoped that we could have her on today, too, just because I think it's important to get women's voices into this, too. It's not all dudes who are into this kind of stuff. It just wasn't uh, schedulable. But uh, but I, I, I do think it's important to note that this is not about a bunch of sweat-soaked, you know, mosquito-bitten guys. There are also some sweat-soaked, mosquito-bitten women in this group. And so that brings me to ZombieCon itself. T, I'm going to have you set the stage a little bit. You went to this, and most when you hear con at the end of something like Comic-Con, yeah. you you think convention center, you think right. air conditioning, you think access to bathrooms. ZombieCon doesn't really work that way, does it? No, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's what made it really intriguing to me was every time I talked to someone about ZombieCon before I went, they made it sound awful, but they always like kind of included something that they loved it and they went every year. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, how awful can it be, you know? But, yeah, they were telling me that it was going to be extremely hot and there's going to be a lot of bugs. And Joseph Paul from the Milwaukee chapter, he actually says he has like a Stockholm syndrome relationship with it. I think people kind of hype it up a little bit more than it actually is. It was a it was a fun camping trip. It was hot. It was a little uncomfortable, especially because I haven't done that much camping in the last few years. But it was actually really nice. It was nice to be offline. It was nice to not be watching the news all the time and and worrying about it and actually just sitting down and talking to people, which is sadly something that um, doesn't happen in my life enough. Right. We should say this is at a mountain uh, somewhere in Missouri. Uh, and T, there's uh, one moment that struck me, which was there's there's a, was a little sort of down the river trip that you guys did. And there were supposed to be MREs for everybody to eat at some point, but somehow or other that didn't happen. And explain what did happen at that moment. Oh, it, w- it was a really great moment, I think, and really sums up my experience in, in Zombie Squad pretty well. So uh, someone forgot to pack the MREs, and but everyone had like their own stash of, of snacks and, and stuff, so everyone just passed stuff around, and everyone got a few bites to eat at least, and we were good for the rest of the trip. Right. So that to me, that's very symbolic. So, Mike, I want to ask you, uh, there's a term that uh, T uses I think, towards the end of his book, doomer fatigue. Like, if you think about this stuff too much, no matter how much fun you manage to make it, it can start to really maybe get to you a certain way. I don't know. How do you deal with it, Mike? Do you think you have it? I do not have it. Uh, I, I can totally see where somebody would get that. The anxiety that comes with prolonged thought about a doomsday type scenario is very real and you know if if you buy into uh that that whole idea that a lot of the the lone wolf prepper type people do uh where you obsess about it and you miss out on actual life that's happening so there there is a balance there you have to reach with you know reaching a state of preparedness and staying on top of that but just continuing to live your life until that day comes in uh, T for you, you're although you uh, you are prepper curious. Uh, you're not exactly a prepper, but to do this, you had to stare into the abyss all the time. In fact, you had to embrace and understand the worldview of a whole bunch of different kinds of preppers. So, what did that do to your mind? It was challenging, definitely. 
You know, I had my desk stacked up with different books that were all different scenarios on how the world might end, basically.、Mm -hmm. And it, it does take a mental toll on you.、Um, I kind of joked around that when I was finished with this book, I was going to read nothing but like Hello Kitty comics <laughs> for a month just to kind of cleanse my, my brain from all of it. So it's heavy stuff, you know? And there are things I think people should legitimately be concerned about. But,、um, but, like Mike was saying, I think, you know,、uh, there's only so much you can do, and you, you can't spend、um, too much time worrying about stuff that's a lot of times out of your control. Right. I would stay away from the Hello Kitty Pacific Rim books, where the <laughs> monsters come out of the vents in the ocean and, and destroy Hello Kitty. So,、um, you know, I wanted,、uh, so I said we weren't going to go over all the nuts and bolts of how to survive, how to prepare, really, that we'd be here all day、uh, if we tried to do this. On the other hand, somebody sent me a kind of an interesting question. And, Mike, I'm going to just,、uh, I have no idea whether you'll have an answer for this or not,、uh, but it was an interesting question, which is, you know, the statistics about how many Americans, what percentage of Americans, Take a prescribed medication. Really, really high. Even I think 20% of Americans are on five prescribed medications. Well, I mean, if you have like, you know, the breakdown of civilization, which could occur any number of ways, CVSs are not going to stay open. Is that something you guys have talked about? Or, I mean, it's hard to stockpile medications, do they go bad? Right.、Uh, and we do not recommend stockpiling medication、uh, for that reason and also, you know, the. The risk of、uh, addiction and everything else. But、uh, we do tell people in our, our bug out bag seminars that、uh, you should talk to your doctor and set up a,、uh, a cycle of medication where you can keep one in your bug out bag, one、uh, you know, uh, filled prescription bottle of your, your medication、uh, or however many medications you have and cycle them out. As you use your, your new ones. And usually, you know, that's like a month to three month basis. So you don't really run the risk of、uh, your medication going bad.、Uh, and that way, you always have that extra set. Same with an extra set of prescription eyeglasses,、uh, copies of, you know, important documents,、uh, all that kind of stuff. You always want to have just enough to get you through in your bug out bag. Yeah. We should say, by the way, that this has become so mainstream. Costco now just sells bug out bags. I mean, you're going to want to customize it, I think, based on your needs. For example, they're not going to have a pair of your prescription eyeglasses in them. But this has now become you know, something that, that people、uh, really do、uh, think about a lot.、Um, all right. So I think what we need to do is、uh, grab a break here. We've got some other、uh, guests here in the final segment. T is、uh, staying with us the, the whole way.、Uh, Mike Davidson has to go off and do something really fun or important with the Zombie Squad. Or probably both. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mike. Oh, you're quite welcome. All right. So we'll grab a break here. We'll come back. We've got one final segment. Let me just mention also our number, 860 275 7266. Uh, it may be hard for us to take calls here, but we can try to do it. 860 275 7266. Tweet at us at WNPR、uh, Colin. At WNPR Colin. That's a good thing to do is to tweet at us. Assuming you still have power in the internet and you know, zombies haven't eaten most of your fingers.
This has been an eye-opener. Until today, I never got that Sergeant Prepper's Lonely Hearts Club band was about survivalism. That's why they're wearing those uniforms. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds really means light the sterno, dummy. I saw the news today, oh boy. I guess we know what that means. It means zombie children have torn Wolf Blitzer to pieces on live TV. Fixing a hole, which was caused by a civilization-destroying meteor strike, with a little help from my friends. That would be my friends in the heavily fortified abandoned missile base. I get it now. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, a.k.a. Dr. Prepper, and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And now, back to Colin. You can't leave. An attack means fallout, which contaminates the air above ground. That's, that's how it works. Well, how, how long do we have to wait until it's safe? Depends on proximity to the closest blast, one year, maybe two. And that's if we're, we're talking about weapons that we know of. Russians are developing some nasty stuff, and if the Martians finally figured out a way to get here, their weapons will make the Ruskies look like, like, like sticks and stones. Well, luckily, I prepared for this. Actually, that's just a little tape I made at my house during the last big snowstorm we had. Uh, I actually am the prepper in our house. My household consists of me, a woman who is never named on this show, uh, and a lazy poodle. So of the three of us, I'm the one. I do have a bag. It's not a bug-out bag. It's more of a bug-in bag. It's kind of, you know, stuff that would be helpful if we're stuck in the house for, you know— a week or more or even 48 hours or more. So it's stuff that it's a bit battery operated radio and various lighting things. And you got to have the headlamp, of course. And stuff. So I've got all that stuff anyway. Uh, and I, I, that's one of the reasons Betsy Kaplan, who produced this show uh, and who I'm staying with the event of a true breakdown of civilization, she's getting through. So I'm just going to follow her around. But, um, but as she pointed out, we're all, most of us have a little bit of prepper in us, whether we say that or not. So, uh, maybe that's a good way to get into our final segment here. Uh, T is still with us. T. Krulos, his book, Apocalypse Any Day Now, Deep Underground with America's Doomsday Preppers. Also joining us by phone, although I think the power is out where he is, is John Stokes, founder of Ars Technica, but currently deputy editor for The Prepared, which is a, a really good website, I think, that is like non-kooky uh, prepper preparedness stuff. And also joining us is Nick, uh, Nick Monfrey, uh, who's sort of a, an expert in preparedness cooking. Uh, so we're going to start with you, uh, John Stokes. Uh, you are somebody who never envisioned becoming. A, you weren't prepared to become a prepper. You didn't prep to become a prepper. So, so how did that happen to you? Yeah, well, I I, I volunteered in some of the um, the Katrina shelters with my wife, and so I kind of uh, you know I had a little bit of a mindset uh, having talked to people in, in Katrina and some of the some of the survivors. You know, having an axe on hand to cut your way through the roof or, you know, having some extra clothes or, or just being prepared to move when you have to move. Uh, these are these are things that can matter to me in my regular life. And then a couple of years later, um, after I, I sold my company and I had written about this on The Prepared, um, I was in, the, uh, was in Chicago at Credit Suisse and I was talking to their private banking team and they were trying to recruit me as a client. And this was when, um, this was, in, I think, in 2009, when Congress was trying to pass TARP uh, to bail out the banks. And so I asked one of the senior bankers there, I just said, well, look, what happens if this doesn't pass? And so this guy looks at his colleague, and then he looks back at me and says, well, then everything stops. 
And so I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, all this stops. He's like, would you go to work if you, if you uh, didn't get paid? You know, he's like, this is happening all across the economy. Paychecks are going to not go out, um, possibly at the end of this week, maybe in the next. And people will stop showing up for work, and then there won't be food and all this kind of thing. And I, I just kind of laughed, and I said, well, should I tell my wife to get a couple of thousand dollars out of the ATM? And he just said, well, that would probably be a good idea. So I was like, wow, here I am in Credit Suisse in Chicago, and this banker in a suit just told me that the world could end this week if Congress doesn't pass this legislation. This is kind of nuts. Right. And I think so you, you describe was, a, a look that passed between the two men who were in the room with you, too. Uh, a look that indicated, I think maybe this wasn't a casual statement he was making. Yeah, no, it wasn't. He kind of looked at his colleague, sort of like, am I going to tell this guy, like, am I going to tell this guy this? You know, and he kind of looks back at me and it's like, yeah, that would be a good idea. Um, so so I that, that, certainly, that certainly woke me up. And then I went back later, and of course, if you read the Michael Lewis book, on the crash, you find that water treatment facilities, they run on credit. They were about to not be able to purify public water. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of core infrastructure things that were that we were within days of losing uh, thanks to a bunch of bad mortgages and loans. Um, so that, that was a moment that really kind of shook me as a father. Um, I had just, uh, my wife had just given birth to our first child, and, you know, I was a new dad, and and so I just I had this rush of responsibility. And this is common. A lot of people get into prepping after the first kid. And this was just sort of an extra boost um, that, made me, that made me really take a look. Okay, how long could I go without water? How long could I go without food? Right. Um, so. so one thing I wanted to ask you and T about here, because this is sort of where I am. Part of it is because I just read the novel Station Eleven. But it's also I've read some more serious or more non-fictional stuff about this, too. I mean, John, we don't really know what's coming, whether it's an electromagnetic pulse or a really bad earthquake or an asteroid hitting the Earth. or. But, you know, I mean, most of the people who look at this stuff feel as though the most probable disaster scenario may be a pandemic, something that, that comes through, through a strain of flu that just can't be stopped. And it just seems to me in the event of that, probably a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, a lot of the practical stuff that all makes a ton of sense to know about or to have is not going to help that much. Yeah, it, it sort of depends on when the lights come back on and and how um, how safe you can stay during whatever whatever's going to happen. So if you can keep yourself fed and keep yourself in clean water, and hygiene is very important, keep yourself hydrated and keep yourself clean and cool, uh, you can you can go for a long time. Mm-hmm. So so and that's and that's the way that I think about it. I'm not somebody that prepares for a pandemic. I don't prepare for an EMP. I don't prepare for civil unrest. I just think in terms of how long am I going to have to go without X? Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. So, T, you know, when I was reading about the luxury condos for the rich, you know, in the in the, uh, the underground thing in, in Kansas, I was thinking, well, if it's a pandemic, they won't even get to their jets in time, right? <laughs> I mean, so so so, how about that? If it's if it's a, like a really killer disease that knocks out ninety nine percent of people, there's not that much you can do, is there? Um, yeah, I mean, you can prepare for it as best as you can to, to stay in your house. But uh, I think a lot of places like that in particular exist just to have sort of a peace of mind, you mm-hmm. know, that you have a plan, um, you have a, a place to go. 
Right. Yeah, and so the, this is how, how we can weave uh, Nick in, too. So Nick, Nick Monfrey is with us. He called in. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I think there's sort of the stuff that John Stokes is talking about right now. What, what would you need to survive? What would you need to get through two weeks where there was basically nobody coming to your assistance and most of the infrastructure you depend on just didn't work? But most people also, they don't want to, like, be completely miserable for those two weeks either. They might even want to have cooked food once in a while. So what can you tell us about uh, uh, cooking preparedness? As far as cooking, yeah. I cook exactly the same way outside during SHTF as I would inside. Mm-hmm. The only difference being is that, of course, I have to utilize proper products. Yeah. I still make Hungarian goulash outside. I still make jambalaya outside. And what I have is I, I call it a fuel to calorie ratio. You have to have a means of cooking it outside that makes sense. And I find that most preppers cannot cook outside. Mm-hmm. They think they can. And unfortunately, with the bigger channels, they, their messages are usually pretty bad. Like, we'll just take white rice, for example. They say, prep with this. Compare that to parboiled rice, and you'll find that white rice is harder to cook. It has less nutrients, and you also have to clean the pan with white rice. Mm. So why would you use a resource like water to do it outside like, let's say you have 30 days of cooking outside. It would take an enormous amount of water just to do them dishes. Right. So that's what I try to stick with. And so a lot of it also means learning how to use your fuel really efficiently. You say you can do a lot with just eight charcoal briquettes. Yeah, absolutely. I actually make Jamaican rice, paella, all my rice and lentil dishes, I make with eight charcoal briquettes. Mm-hmm. And this is going to throw the audience for a huge curve right here. All I use is your standard charcoal chimney starter, the one that you actually use the charcoals to start before you put it in the grill, yep. that's what I call my proper grill. Mm. So with eight charcoal briquettes, I can make any type of rice dish. I can bake, I can make muffins, I can make cornbread, and you name it. And it doesn't get any more efficient than that. Just, Nick, really quickly, how long have you been a prepper? How long have you been thinking about this stuff? I was caught in Hurricane Sandy in Jersey, and I've been a proper ever since then. All right. So, John Stokes, that's a great point, too. You know, I mean, as you said, you partly were converted by working in shelters uh, in, during Katrina. I mean, a lot of what we're going to face in life is just going to be a storm that really sets us back for days, weeks, maybe months, right? That's right. I mean, when I first moved, my wife and I moved up from Austin to 17 acres right north of Austin. And within the first few weeks, we were on well water for the first time. And um, we have horses and we, we have three kids. So we wanted the kids to be able to ride horses and do outdoor things. And the power went out and it went out for eight hours. And we were also flooded in and couldn't get to the grocery store. And so we had no water. The tap was dry because we were on well water. We had no power. So I just went out to the horse the horse water tank and I filled up a bucket of dirty horse water and then I used my my prepper water filter to filter out gallons of it for us to consume in the house. So this was, you know, a practical prep that that water filter was an investment, but it, it totally came in handy. We used it. Right. So if you're starting to get interested in all this, I really do recommend uh, John's website, the, the one where he's deputy editor, The Prepared. It's pretty easy to find. You know, uh, T, as we begin to wind up here, I should say, first of all, that uh, Nick Monfrey is now the guy who just call, was talking about uh, cooking. He's booked for the final episode. We don't know when it is. The final episode of The Food Schmooze. Now, basically, when everything breaks down and Chris Prosperi is a zombie, uh, Nick is going to be on. He's going to show Faith how to cook some stuff, you know, just like right, you know, minutes before the world. 
world ends. So I have this friend, T, who is very interested in all this stuff, and his sister was trying to impress him, and she said, look, and she showed him, she had one of those things that cuts your seatbelt, and then the other side of it smashes out the glass so that you can get out of your car when it goes into the water or something. And he said to her, Susan, do you have even a blanket in your car? And it seems to me that's a, that's one of the fallacies we do, right? We think we need exotic stuff before we've even got the really basic things, T. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I went to some of the proper conventions, and there's a lot of stuff with a lot of bells and whistles. Um, but but like you were saying, a water filter is a very practical thing to have. Mm-hmm. Um, having some backup food, blankets like you mentioned, just uh, having the basic stuff um, with you. Um, could be really useful. Right. So we're going to stop it there. I want to thank everybody who helped out today, but uh, most especially uh, T. Krulos. His book is Apocalypse Any Day Now, Deep Underground with America's Doomsday Preppers. And yeah, check out John Stokes's website, The Prepared. It's like, a not, even though that's kind of a scary sounding name, um, it, it's actually, I, I think, a much more, it's a, they, they position themselves as sane preppers. Team, my team reporters, 